Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So last week we talked about agile development as it applies to data science, but it turns out that sometimes agile cannot be so agile. <laughs> For data science, yeah, that's right. For data science. <laughs> cool, let's talk about that. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Uh, yep, so we should do just a real quick recap of what Agile is for folks who maybe missed it last week, and also because I'm not sure I did a really great job covering this, honestly. I actually wanted to start with some stuff from the Agile Alliance, which is uh, a group that kind of is one of the keepers of best practices around Agile. And uh, they have these 12 principles that I think actually give you a pretty good idea. These are the, um, the some of the focal points of Agile. They don't obviously describe a whole process, but they sort of give you an idea of what the priorities are. Mm, so mm -hmm. bear with me for a moment while I go through these. Roar. <laughs> uh, oh, is that a bear noise? Was that what that was? Yeah, that was a bear noise. Yeah. Got it. It was Good supposed stuff. to be under, the, uh, under my breath, you know, but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, 12 principles. So number one, our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software. Early so, and continuous delivery. Okay. Uh, yeah. And a strong user focus. Yeah. Also. Customer first. Yep. Uh, number two, welcome changing requirements, even late in development. Agile processes harness change for the customer's competitive advantage. That feels like it's in alignment with the name Agile. Uh, yeah. So things change. Roll with it. Number three, deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to the shorter time scale. So short, iterative, this is kind of getting into that idea that there's a sprint cadence. Mm, yeah. Okay. Number four, business people and developers must work together daily throughout the project. No, but I hate working with business people. <laughs> I mean, I'm kidding. It's actually I... wonderful when, when both you want to work with the other side, but the other side wants to work with you too. I completely agree. I think daily is, I don't know, maybe there's like a, <laughs> a day every once in a while when you can, you can just put your heads on, headphones on and whatever. Yeah. But yeah, the idea that uh, if you're going to be talking to your, your users, they're probably business people and well, not necessarily business people, but hmm. the business side of the house and the software dev side of the house need to be talking to each other. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because the way, uh, often the way companies are set up, it feels like they actually don't have a lot in common. But when you're able to, to um, tightly integrate with each other in, in each other's processes, then you find that you can actually get a lot more done and you can get it done better. Oh, totally. Yeah. Number five, build projects around motivated individuals. Give them the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. So a lot of autonomy, mm. a lot of you know, people who are in charge of, uh, making important calls sometimes not, not a lot of there's, you know, time and place for a decision by committee, but there's also a lot of, um, individual right. agency. So, yeah, right. So, uh, uh, individual autonomy, trust, a little less hierarchy, a little less top down or a lot less top down. Sure. Uh, number six, the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face-to-face -face conversation. So a lot of agile teams center around like a daily standup and mm. uh, weekly meetings where they're talking through different parts of the sprint that they're all working on. So a lot of talking to each other. Yeah. And this can work over video conferencing as well, but face-to-face, uh, -face, I, I feel like VC just hasn't quite 
gotten there in terms of like video conferencing. Yeah, ah, v- no, okay. no, not not VCs not, as not in venture capital. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, venture capitalists aren't really there. No, um, yeah, video conferencing. I feel like the the goal of video conferencing is to be uh, as good as in person. Uh, but you know, it it can work in this case. But in person, I think is the best. It's great when you can have it. Yep. Uh, number seven, working software is the primary measure of progress. This isn't about checkboxes. Yeah, this isn't about checkboxes. This is whether there's a thing that works. Oh, got it. So I guess extrapolating from that, it's not like, okay, do this, then do that, then do that. And at the very end of that whole process, then that's when you ship. Instead, formulate your uh, your sprints in a way where at the end you have something that's working. Even if it's not feature complete, even if it's missing some important things, uh, it's something that theoretically you could ship. Yeah, this goes back to, we talked a little bit last time about the idea that at the beginning of a of a sprint period, when you're laying out your work, you lay out acceptance criteria, which should be something like, I am able to do this thing. And uh, it doesn't matter if you do all kinds of interesting stuff between now and the end of the sprint. If it's not able to do that thing, then you haven't accomplished the goals mm-hmm. of the sprint. Uh, number eight, agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. In other words, don't burn out. Mm-hmm. That's important. Indeed. Number nine, continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. In other words, if you cut corners, it will come back to haunt you. And in the long run, good design practices, good software development practices make it so you can move faster. Mm, this one feels like it it, uh, it follows really nicely from the previous one. The metaphor that I always like to use when I'm talking about hacking something together is hacking something together is kind of like diving for for the finish line. If your finish line is really close, then, you know, sure, you can dive for the finish line. But the problem is that uh, with projects, typically, unlike races, the finish line will move. You will get to the finish line and then you'll find that you actually, the finish line is a little bit further. And now that you've dove for the finish line you're on the ground all bloodied and bruised and you can't really <laughs> run anymore um so that that's kind of the the way I, I like to think about it yep number 10 simplicity the def- the art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential so it's not just about what you do it's about what you don't do as well mm-hmm. number 11 the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. This is getting back to the comment you made a little bit earlier about uh, it's not super hierarchical, and if you're yeah. if you if you have motivated individuals who have a lot of autonomy, putting them together in a team where they can work together is going to be the best, give you the best outcomes. And then number 12, the last one, at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. Mm, that's, that's fantastic. I like that one. That's yeah. the, meta, the meta process. Yeah, exactly. And so when you're actually doing Agile, there's a bunch of little process things like what are the meetings that you should have and how do you organize and prioritize your work and what are your processes mm. around code review and I don't even know all kinds of things. And so we'll talk about, we talked about some of those last week, ones that translate well into work that's uh, more data science-y or more analytics-y, but there are parts of this that don't work particularly well 
also, nor some common practices that don't work particularly well. And so those will be some of the ones we focus on in this episode. I'm excited to hear about these because all of this seems to apply very nicely to my work because I'm in software development. Of course, that's what this was, uh, I I believe, what it was designed for initially. Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure was. So to talk about some of the things that don't work so well, again, this is a blog post from uh, Locally Optimistic, and we will have a, uh, Michael Kaminsky was the author, we will have a link on lineardigressions.com. So to dive straight into this, what are things in data science that are pretty common that do not comport well with Agile? Uh, so the first is uh, what the author here calls the fortuitous finding. This is the idea that when you're a data scientist, sometimes you find things that you didn't expect to find. And this is hmm. a little bit this is a little bit less likely to happen in software because in software you're building the thing. It's not like there's a something that you're trying to find or uncover. Right. Yeah, you have kind of a better mental map of the thing that needs to coalesce whereas with data science you're trying to uh, combine things in a way where a thing coalesces that can do your thing. You're not coalescing it, if that makes sense. Uh, as, as directly, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that you're you're working with a a body of data that you you know that you don't know perfectly and that you don't yeah. have control over in a sense. And so the point is that things can surprise you, and mm. if you're it's it's nice to have some protection against going down rabbit holes. That was what we talked about is one of the the good things about agile and being, you know, pretty focused and working in these couple week long sprints on particular things that you want to accomplish. But what that sometimes does is it boxes you off a little bit from being able to explore. You know, sometimes the rabbit holes are, are a good thing. And Ooh, so acknowledging, yeah, that that's an important part of data science and well we'll come back to some of the uh there's some ways that you can make modifications to the agile process to to deal with this a little bit better but just acknowledging that agile usually is saying okay how much work are we going to accomplish in two weeks then let's stack up all that work and get to it this is interesting because it doesn't really feel like it's exactly a, a binary like a complete difference right because in software, you do have rabbit holes. They're just not as, perhaps not as plentiful and perhaps not as deep. But to some degree, you want some protection from going down too many rabbit holes and, and losing the path that you thought you were going to traverse. So I'm, I'm curious to know, like, what do you, I, I guess, how do you handle that in data science? If you expect that there are going to be rabbit holes, how do you know uh, when to abandon a rabbit hole or when to go down a rabbit hole? Well, actually, so this gets into the next post. So let me just skip ahead to that a little bit. So mm, okay. there were a couple a couple bullet points about uh, modifications here that I think address the question you're asking. So the first is, well, it's the second in the blog post, but we'll talk to it first. Um, build in Slack time for the exploration. Um, well, let me let me acknowledge that real quick because this is a, the second point from the. I'm getting things all out of order. A second thing that <laughs> Agile doesn't do particularly well is exploratory data analysis. So that's the uh, just go out and explore stuff and get acquainted first. And that's often pretty closely coupled with the fortuitous finding, although they're not exactly the same thing. Mm. But the point is build in time for those for that period at the beginning where you're just kind of wandering a la- around and learning what's in there. 
And then when there's some kind of interesting thing that you want to go down a rabbit hole, this is the second modification after the slack time. Second modification is what's called time bound spikes for research. So you say there's something interesting here. I want to take some time to explore it. Maybe not right now, but in the next sprint or something like that, or maybe in this sprint and then just acknowledge that then the goalposts are going to move a little bit. I want to go down a little bit, a little bit down this rabbit hole. This is a research question that I don't know if I'm going to totally answer, but here's the amount of time that I want to research in it or geez, the amount of, here's the amount of time that I want to invest in it. And then that's the amount of time that you get to it. So that's a good way of protecting yourself from totally losing track of, of what it is you're trying to do. Now, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll have an answer by the end of that time bound spike, but it does build in a time when you come up for air and you sort of look around and you make another decision about if you want to proceed. Mm, okay. Some other things that don't work quite as well. So this is coming from the blog post and I'll cover it. I'm not sure if I totally agree. So the, the, the allegation here is that product ownership and story writing, this is some of the stuff that product managers do about what should you be working on and kind of setting the priorities that this doesn't always comport well with analytics. And I think that might be fair in the sense that these are some details of software development that are extremely user focused. So the idea is that this is a good way of um, defining what new features a piece of software should have. And since data science isn't really, doesn't necessarily have features, like a model doesn't have features in the same way that software does. Well, it has features, but in a completely different sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Overloaded language. Right. So this is a thing that just does might not make a whole lot of sense. And in particular, I can sort of understand how if you have, you know, a lot of product managers come from a CS background or they're not necessarily data scientists. And so if they're put in charge of making prioritization decisions for data science work, that can sometimes be a little bit less than ideal. But let me move on to the last one now, because I think that this is actually a really important one to call out, which is business as usual support. And so this is the idea that a lot of data science and analytics teams actually are cursed a little bit by their own successes in the sense that if they're doing a good job, there's people in their organization who count on them to deliver models or summary statistics or reports, information to help people make decisions. Mm -hmm. But if you're a data scientist, it's pretty easy for that to you know, that's competing for your time with yeah, building Yeah, they can take stuff. over your whole life. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. running reports and, yeah, I see. So that's interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, have ideally... Have you had that experience where, oh, like, you have something that you really want to research, but you just can't because you have too many things to... charts to make or something? Oh, yeah. I've, I mean, this, this happens to every... I mean, it happens to me a little bit differently now because I do more of a managerial thing. But, yeah, I have, mm-hmm. you know, my air quotes, real job. And then there's the stuff (laughs) that takes up my time and they're not necessarily always the same thing. Mm. Um, And it's because in the course of, you know, the business running, somebody comes over to me and is like, Hey, this thing needs to be taken care of. And 
you need to do it. And I was really like, okay. Um, so I think everybody knows what that's like. Um, yeah, yeah. But it can be, yeah, it can be bad for, for data scientists because, well, in particular, if you don't budget for that in your sprint estimations, then uh, that just leads to heartbreak and disappointment because you might have a plan of, I'm going to work on programming for 30 hours this week. Let's say the rest of it is you know, meetings and interrupt time and whatever. And they do 30 hours of programming, but then, uh, you know, it's the week of some big report that's due. And so you have to spend a bunch of time preparing that report. Well, then you're either not going to get all your work done or you're going to be pretty tired and unhappy at the end of that. So mm. you need to be cognizant of those other, those other duties that you have. So those are some of the things that don't work great. Yeah, I guess I guess Scrum kind of implicitly assumes that it has 100% of your time. And I, I suppose you could probably modify it to, uh, to work with some percentage of your time, that percentage being whatever time you actually have to do your, your real job, you know, uh, as opposed to the other stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, most agile frameworks that I'm familiar with, there isn't there isn't a lot that's structurally built in there that assumes that you have to be working on this 100% of the time. Yeah, uh, the the problem though is signal to noise ratio because if you are working on it 100% of the time and you spend 5% of your week doing overhead things like doing the daily stand-ups and you know uh, doing all of that stuff that that Scrum kind of imposes upon you um, or suggests you do then, you know, that's 5% of your time that you're doing overhead and 95% of your time that you're doing stuff. But let's imagine that you have a job where you're actually only able to really get good work done 40% of the time. Well, that overhead for Scrum is still going to take 5% of your time. So now you only have 35% of your time. So the the percentage of time that's overhead gets uh, larger with respect to the amount of time that you have as you have less time. Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I suppose that can be true that if you if there's kind of the fixed cost of just running the sprints and yeah. maintaining communication and then there's this sort of variable amount of extra time that you might have and how that ratio can change. I guess that's true. Yeah, I, I definitely have experienced that outside of the context of Scrum, just where I've had occasional weeks where like um a couple weeks ago I went to a conference for a couple days and then I had some random things that I had to, to deal with as well. And it came time to write a weekly report. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I didn't do anything this week. So writing a weekly report is kind of a waste of time. But because it's a weekly report, and I've kind of agreed that I'll do that every week for, so that way everyone has visibility, I still had to do it. But it ended up taking away a disproportionate amount of time for the benefit that it gave me. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the other thing that can be a drawback from being part-time on interrupt work and part-time on your scrum work or your sprint work or whatever is also that context switching can be pretty expensive. Mm. So, you know, it, most people don't have the luxury of only working on one thing at a time, but if you're spread across 10 different projects, <laughs> it's really, really easy to just spend all of your time switching between them and you never make any meaningful progress on any, any of them. So that's the other thing that can be really hard if you try to burn too many candles is you just, it it's too hard to keep track of everything. Yeah. Okay. So we've already talked about a couple of the things that 
you can modify for analytics, you know, agile practices for analytics. So time bound spikes for research. Uh, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, say that in advance and how long you want to spend down there and then building in slack time for exploration. So explicitly allocating bandwidth for stuff that's not really strictly structured, you know, should be probably relevant to the stuff that your company is working on or that your team is working on. But this is kind of like R&D time or investment time, or it's the general idea that having some of that freedom allows you to opportunistically find stuff. And then a couple more, I think this is actually a really nice idea for Agile in general. Um, but we were talking a little bit last time about acceptance criteria, that that's the way that you know, you know you're done with a sprint is if you've delivered a piece of software that does a certain thing or that allows a user to do a certain thing. One of the things they propose here is as part of your acceptance criteria, you have to write what the next story is. So basically there's a documentation piece that's wrapped up in this a little bit. And there's a, if we were to continue there, that's wrapped up in it. And that means that maybe the next week you're working on that next story, or it means that if somebody comes along to this six months later or a year later, they can pick up, you know, maybe not immediately, but without too much difficulty, they can pick up where you left off. Right. In a sense, it's, it's, um, you end your week and then you download all of your context of, of where you think things should go before you leave for the weekend, <laughs> rather than coming back on, on Monday and, you know, trying to remember it and not being able to get it. Yeah, I generally like the idea that as part of wrapping up one piece of work, you yeah. have, you know, a little bit of planning for documentation and for saying what would be next. Yeah, as you have your planning and you have your communication uh, kind of built in. And then the last thing I thought this was pretty nice is what they're, what they're calling peer review in show and tell. So one of the things that at least um, my team we do is at the ends of our sprints, we have meetings where anybody in the company who's interested in what we're, what we're working on, or they want to see what we've built that, that week or that sprint, they come to a meeting and we do demos and we talk about, you know, if we've had any user interviews, things that we've learned, um, you know, just generally have this show and tell aspect of what we've accomplished. And they're suggesting that there should also be a peer review component of this for data science work. So different data scientists, ideally, or data analysts, hopefully there's a few of them, are showing up to these end of sprint uh, summary meetings or, you know, looking at the end of sprint artifacts and generally having a conversation about what they've done. And that way, the people who weren't part of that sprint are keeping up and they're learning new things and they're staying involved in the research. And the folks who are doing the research are getting a second and third and fourth opinion on the stuff that they've done and building in time explicitly to communicate with their peers and benefit maybe from other ideas or suggestions that their, that their peers had that they didn't have a chance to think about when they were heads down working. Yeah. In software development, uh, you're often all, everything that you're doing is in version control. And so, um, in order for your code to be able to land, someone else needs to go and take a look at it. And sometimes, uh, sometimes these, we call them diffs. Sometimes these diffs are, uh, or commits, uh, are smaller than an actual full feature. Sometimes, you know, they're broken up, uh, based on the architecture or something, uh, designs, 
But the idea is that everyone who is reviewing your code before it lands, uh, in order for it to be able to land, understands the context that you wrote the code in and the feature that you're kind of going toward. Uh, and then also in those diffs, you generally want to have a test plan. So at the very least, they can look at your test plan and say, oh, okay, that looks reasonable to me. And uh, if they want, they can go and they can actually run your test and make sure it works for them as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So kind of a, kind of a more fully featured code review of sorts. Yeah. Making sure that there's, that there's extra eyes that go on to everything as part of the process of it being built. That makes sense. Yeah, it, it works really well um, in software development. It, it feels like it's a little bit different with data science, but I, I like the idea of having a show and tell where, uh, with that peer review aspect to it. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of data scientists come from more academic backgrounds, so the idea of a peer review that you talk through your your methodology and your results with your colleagues is um, maybe somewhat more familiar to your average data scientist than your average software engineer, let's say. And so maybe that's a little bit, a little bit easier for data scientists to think about than software engineers. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder how much of it is just language because peer review sounds a little scary to me, but you know, code review is not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I remember when I first started working as a data scientist, code review felt very scary. I mean, it wasn't actually painful or anything, but it sounded a little bit intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that actually brings us to the end here of the stuff we wanted to talk about. Um, hopefully now you, if you're a data scientist who hasn't thought about Agile before, you have a little bit of a better sense of what that's all about and sort of the good, the bad, the ugly, the stuff that's nicer once we make modifications, so on and so on. Um, but it's a as, as somebody who works with a team that's got data scientists and engineers on it, um, this is something that we think about a lot is is how can engineers and data scientists work together. Engineers are obviously pretty comfortable with a lot of these a lot of these practices. Our data scientists uh, at Civis are very uh, building focused, so it works nicely for them too. But uh, I can definitely empathize with some of the stuff in here where they said sometimes it doesn't work perfectly. So uh, mm. it's good to be thinking about how to uh, how to use these tools as kind of a, a collaborative framework for data scientists to take the best from software engineering and vice versa. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.